You'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 8. We will resume our studies through this book. How many of you have uh, some key dreams in your life that you still remember? You still remember that dream? It's very, very prominent. My most memorable dream occurred when Betsy and I were living in Indiana, and I was doing doctoral studies, and uh, between studies and work, I was getting about four to five hours sleep a night. And in this dream... Uh, Betsy and I were in a funeral home and she was holding our son David and in this tiny little casket was our baby daughter Beth and uh, greetings from people went on for hours and in this dream someone finally asked me how Beth had died and uh, the mental struggle to explain woke me up and my pillow was soaked and I got up and I realized she's alive and I walked into her room and picked her out of her crib picked her up and held her and wept for two hours (laughs) you know how how sometimes uh, people say that uh, over time dreams fade this 40-year-old dream has not faded in any detail. Uh, and I know what connected it with real life because Beth was always sick, always. And uh, her doctor uh, had run a test on her for leukemia, which came back inconclusive and uh, had to be run again. It was a long few days. It turned out she had an undiagnosed staph infection for over a year. But once that was taken care of, she became a very healthy little girl. Daniel is all about dreams and about the interpretation of dreams. And it's also about the interpreter of dreams. But here's the difference. Daniel's dreams were given by God and were prophetic of what was to come. And Bible scholars speak about the progress of revelation to describe how God unveils truth about something and then later he unveils more, he reveals more about it and then later even more over the decades and over the centuries and he's not changing what had been revealed before but he is adding to it and sometimes clarifying it. I mean we've already seen the example of this Uh, as we were were looking at the four kingdoms that were pictured in Daniel 2 and the more detail that was added to that same picture in Daniel chapter 7. We looked at the the idea of the Son of Man and how that unfolds in the New Testament last week. Uh, And and that points to Jesus. Ultimately, everything as as it is added to and as as it is clarified, ultimately it all points to Jesus Christ as Tracy just read he is indeed the spirit of prophecy so here we are at Daniel 8 which is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible and I've seen even sermon sermons titled that the hardest chapter in the Bible and it's Daniel 8 
It records a dream. But even Daniel, who is the interpreter of dreams, is baffled about this one. But then, in the dream, in the vision itself, it is interpreted for him. And as he hears the interpretation of the dream, then he's still baffled. All the details in Daniel later, future to Daniel. But here, for us, we see that most of them have been fulfilled in the rearview mirror of history. We can see them in that rearview mirror. Daniel looked at the whole thing and said, huh? But we see most of those things and say, oh, sure, I I get that. We understand how that was fulfilled. But there is more here that has not yet been fulfilled And we come alongside Daniel and say, huh? Last week I reminded you that the language panel of Daniel 2 through 7 was Aramaic. Aramaic was the international language of politics, diplomacy, and commerce during Daniel's day. So if you were reading along as a Hebrew in Daniel and you hit chapter 2, verse 4, you would read this. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And from that point on to the end of chapter 7, it's in Aramaic, a sister language uh, to, to Hebrew, but the language of the Gentile world. And then at the end of chapter 7 and starting chapter 8, our passage today, now again, the Aramaic panel is done and chapter 8 resumes the Hebrew. So in these intervening chapters, God has been telling the story of the world to the people of the world and the language of the world. But now, now he focuses back on unveiling history as it affects the Hebrews in the Hebrew language. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which had appeared previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and he continues to peg that geographically. Wait a minute. Daniel lives in Babylon, not Susa. Susa was the birthplace of the Persian Empire. A century later, Susa would become the Persian city where Esther would become queen. And even after that, later still, Nehemiah would be the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. So even the location of this vision is prophetic. Daniel is transported in both space and time. He doesn't receive the vision in Susa. That's where he was in the vision. Imagine if an Englishman in London in 1700 were told, you will be given a vision of the American colony in 2019. And then he were transported to Times Square. That would be horrific at so many different levels. (laughs) Well, the next few verses give the the vision itself. Let's start reading at verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power, to rescue from his power. 
but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Very fast mobility. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, sort of a unigoat. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which had been seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled himself to the ground and trampled on him, uh, hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, look up here. You got it? We're, are we good? All right. I can tell you with certainty that the ram represents the Medo-Persian alliance and that the goat represents the Greek empire. And you may wonder, how did Gary get that smart? Well, look at verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. This is nothing to sneeze at. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of the Greece of Greek of Greece. So uh, the text tells us what the interpretation is. So let's talk about these very briefly. First, and I'm gonna be brief. I'm gonna try to condense some stuff here. Uh, Daniel would first of all with the ram. Daniel wouldn't understand this because he was still under the Babylonians. The transition has not yet happened. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire has not yet conquered the Babylonian Empire. So he wouldn't get this, but we would because just around the corner was this lopsided empire, Medo-Persia, that we saw in chapter 2. It was the two arms of a statue. We saw it again in chapter 7. Uh, the bear raised up on one side, kind of lopsided. Rams are not gentle Creatures. They're not like gentle lambs. They are aggressive, and they use those horns to exert impact. That's where the phrase battering ram came from. Uh, the the Medo-Persian Empire was a, a powerful empire that lasted from 538 to 333. But then after that, the Greek Empire conquered the ram. The goat destroyed the ram. Philip of Macedon, for whom his son named the biblical city Philippi, Philip of Macedon united all the Greek city-states except for Sparta under a military umbrella. But Alexander is considered the first real king of Greece. Uh, in 334, he began his challenges to the Persians. So you've got the Babylonians. Then you've got the Medo-Persian Empire. So we've got the Babylonians, and then we've got the ram, and now we've got the goat. The Greek Empire... In uh, 334, he challenged the Persians. There were some legendary battles. In the following year, 333, he destroyed the backbone of the Persian army in a decisive battle. And in 332, uh, he conquered Egypt without even having a battle. In order to understand Daniel 8, you have to grasp there's some geopolitical realities of the previous thousand years. Any army that was moving overland between Egypt and Syria or Asia Minor had to go through Israel. Israel was the path. 
Um, well, Alexander conquered the uh, <clears throat> Persian Empire. What happened to Alexander? Verse 8 tells us that the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Okay. Before I get into that, let me mention that Alexander left a huge footprint on the world. He insisted that Greek culture, Greek language, Greek thought, Greek lifestyle enter into the cultures of the countries that he conquered. He, the term is, Hellenized them. And he established about 70 cities that were to promote Greek culture. The most famous was the Egyptian port named for him, Alexandria. So all of what Alexander did became the cultural context for all of the New Testament, which was written in Greek, not in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, not in Latin for the Romans. So Alexander, the, verse 8 tells us, the large horn was broken. This fits well with his death at the height of his power. He self-destructed, actually, through orgies and drunkenness and reportedly died of malaria and complications of alcoholism at the age of 32. 32. He had no heirs, and his kingdom was fragmented into four parts. Remember chapter 7, we saw this in verse 6. Here, Alexander's uh, empire was divided among his generals. Um, Seleucus, who took Syria, Israel, and Mesopotamia. Ptolemy took Egypt. Cassander took Macedonia. Lysimachus took Thrace and Asia Minor. Now, we know what happened when the reference is to those, to those four powers. We know what happened. Daniel didn't. For us, it's history. For Daniel, it's future history. So far, so good. And I'm going to skip ahead to then get an interpretation of what we're about to read. And later you'll see why. Look at verses 15 and 16. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, so there's this being that has the appearance of a man, that has the voice of a man, but he commands Gabriel. And he said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. And three times in the next two, three verses, he mentions that it pertains to the end of time. After mentioning who the ram and the goat were, he has more to say about this third strange creature what i'm about to suggest to you is that we're we're going to what we're going to read already has one fulfillment in history that we can point to just like persia and greece fulfilled prophecy but that there's more to it it points forward as gabriel specifically says to the time of the end to the final period to the appointed time of the end verses 17 through 19 this is a really bad analogy, but here it is. It's really bad. But you know those monster horror movies where the heroes are fighting this awful beast? And then about two-thirds through the film, the mother of the beast is awakened that nobody knew was there, and she's five times bigger, and they realize that all along the beast that they've been battling is a child. 
and they are now in big trouble. They are in unimaginable trouble. Here, I believe, in this chapter, we are looking at unimaginable, unthinkable, double trouble. And remember that we are in the Hebrew section, so what we're about to read, while it's devastating, is focused particularly on the Jews. Verse 9, toward the beautiful land. He's talking about the land of Israel. Doesn't even mention the Roman Empire. There's a trajectory from a second century fulfillment, historical fulfillment, that arcs forward to the time of the end, the final period, the appointed time of the end. Three times in verses 17 through 19. So this future beast is at the time of the end, the mother of all beasts, and is the moral analog whose shadow we've already seen in history. Now, that's what I'm going to suggest. Let's read it quickly. Oh, let's just not read it quickly. Verse 9. Out of one of them came a small, a rather, uh, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. It grew up toward the host of heaven and caused some of the host, some of the stars to fall to the earth. It trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, him being God. The place of his sanctuary, the temple, was thrown down. On account of the transgression of the host, on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. It will, be, it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And I heard a holy one speaking, yet, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, skip down to the interpretation. Look at verse 23. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent, skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, and I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Wow. When you look at Media Persia, we understand. Greece, we understand. But then there's this third thing. It does, half of the details that are described here don't fit with any person we've ever seen. But half of them do. The part that doesn't fit is for, as Daniel was told, the time of the end, the final period, the appointed time of the end. Okay, first of all, who's the historical person here? Any Jew would know 
the notorious name of a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. Jewish commentators, both Orthodox and liberal, agree with this identification. This is who is described in Daniel 8. They all agree with that. He came out of the Seleucid dynasty, out of Greece, so that the, 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 the um, uh, uh, ancestry fits, out of one of the four horns. His given name was simply Antiochus. His brother, Seleucus uh, Philopater, was one of the four Greek rulers, and Antiochus murdered his brother. And he became king in 175 B.C. His capital was Antioch, Antiochus, right? He subjugated Israel. He put a puppet high priest at the temple. In 170 B.C., he invaded Egypt. And on his way back, he discovered that the Jews had heard a rumor that he was killed and had rejoiced a little too much. Actually, the Jews hated the man. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, that is, Antiochus the illustrious god, Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which mean, meant Antiochus the madman. Well, they, had, they took the priest that he put in, installed in the temple, they removed him and put the proper priest back in place. Antiochus was just furious when he discovered what they'd done, and he killed 40,000 Jews within the space of three days, took tens of thousands of others captives, and two years later, the Romans pushed Antiochus out of Egypt. And he was, his mood was so angry, so foul, that on his way back through the pleasant land, Israel, he massacred thousands more Jews. He just, he just hated the Jews. He, re, he regarded Judaism as a religion, as a threat to Greek culture. Here's a summary from historical records of what is attributed to him. In 171, he established his own man, a Jewish trader, as a high priest. He outlawed circumcision, outlawed Sabbath observance, stopped temple sacrifices in 167 B.C. Criminal offense, he, he made it a criminal offense for anyone to possess or read the Jewish scripture, slaughtered 40,000 Jews, sold another 40,000 into slavery, plundered the temple, dedicated the temple to his idols, including a statue of Zeus who looked remarkably like Antiochus. He forced the priests to eat pork, forced it down their throats, established prostitution in the temple chambers, and most notorious of all, he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Defiling the temple in this way was called the abomination that causes desolation. The abomination of desolation. Uh, which meant that, that abomination meant that the temple itself was desolate. There's a lot of history here that we're not going into. You can read about the Jewish revolt against Antiochus. Shortly after he died, the Jews rose up under Mattathias, who had four sons. His most prominent son was Judas. And he had the nickname, the hammer, Judas Maccabeus. And you can read in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, those books in, before the New Testament, the hammer, uh, about how the, these various uh, battles took place. The temple was purified, it was rededicated, which was where the word Hanukkah comes from. And the celebration of Hanukkah is tied to that. In December of 165 B.C. Or, or about, verse 14... 2,300 days 
after the desecration began. Wow. The precision and accuracy of the prophecy is pretty astonishing. Now, every Jewish commentator I've ever seen, even from no matter what theological perspective, says, yes, he's talking about Antiochus. And yet, and yet, yet, there's more to this beast than we see fulfilled in Antiochus. The, 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 the stars? Well, first of all, verses 23 to 26 are marked off in Hebrew poetry. So a Jew who was reading this would, would now think, maybe I need to read these verses a little differently. Second, some of the terms that are used seem bigger than Antiochus. For example, verse 23 says, when the transgressors have run their course, which seems to refer more to the time when God steps in and says, yes, I am now going to judge. Uh, ver verse 24, not by his own power. There's some other insidious power at work here. Verse 25, through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. This fits more with the initial political model of political intrigue in Revelation than it does with the military rampages of Antiochus. There was nothing shrewd about Antiochus. Uh, verse 25 says he will destroy many while they are at ease, which again fits with the peace and prosperity that we see prophesied in the future. And I will promise you no one was at ease under Antiochus. Um, he will oppose the prince of princes. Antiochus never did this. But a future Antichrist will. Verse 25, he will be broken without human agency. This is it fits better with supernatural judgment more than providential judgment. Now, maybe all those terms could be shoehorned in to fit Antiochus with, as poetic license and hyperbole, possibly. Um, and, and, and in that way, confine Daniel to fulfillment before Jesus' birth? I just don't think so. So, first of all, it's in poetry. Secondly, there are these there are these terms that are bigger than Antiochus, I think. And third, as I mentioned before, we have those time references that are given in 17 through 19 at the time of the end, the final period, the appointed time of the end. Sounds to me like that's referring to the time of the end. And fourth, and for me this is important, Jesus was once asked, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And over the next two chapters, he describes to them what things will be like prior to his second coming. Now, one of the things that he mentioned is this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, You'll know the time is near. So Jesus is saying that which was referred to in this, this whole section, I believe, of Daniel 7 through 9, because that's in chapter 9. Jesus is saying that that is yet future to Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? All right. And that fits well with the trajectory of Daniel 7 through 9. So I believe that before Jesus returns in glory, the moral analog of the beast will be manifested. 
and it will be anti-Christ and will oppose the prince of princes, oppose God. And if you read ahead to Revelation 4 through 19, you will see the hatred and the tribulation just vomited on the Jews by the spirit of Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes opposed God locally. The future beast will oppose God globally. Gary, thank you very much. Appreciate your opinions. Why bother to try to make this case? Four quick reasons. Our view of Scripture, our view of reality, our view of sin, and our hope. First of all, our view of Scripture requires us to handle accurately the word of truth. We are Signal Mountain Bible Church, and we want to teach the Bible as well as we can, chapter by chapter, to those who want to know God's word. And prophetic scripture points forward, all of it, ultimately, to Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus with the two men on the Emmaus Road? He tells them, you, you don't understand the Old Testament. And beginning, the scripture says, with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. All of them. Second, our view of reality, a biblical worldview commits you to a view of reality that's larger than your ability to explain everything that it contains. A view of reality that's larger than your ability actually even to completely experience it. We live on two levels. This world is not all that there is. We see through a glass darkly, right? There's more to it. And, and when, when, when people were describing heaven in the Bible, they, they run out of words. They don't, we just are inadequate to describe the reality of that. When Paul was given a vision of it, in order to keep him from exalting himself, he was given this thorn in the flesh to keep him in, anchored in this world that he was inhabiting. One of the purposes of suffering. Now, <clears throat> what we know is because the biblical worldview is larger than what happens in just this life, because of that, we know there is final justice and there will be final joy and the contrast is this if someone does not believe in a personal God then they have to endure the moral frustration that with one bullet Hitler got away with it there's no final justice to him because if this world is all there is when he left this world that was it no accountability Without God, Jeffrey Epstein got away with it, and all of his collaborators will get away with it. Without God, the world makes no moral sense. If an atheist inconsistently believes, someone who believes this world is all there is, inconsistently believes that there are moral standards of right and wrong that are more than just social constructs, that, that, and that those moral standards should be universalized to everybody. Not just true for me, but true for you as well. That would be a cause of great moral frustration to know that there is no final justice. But as Christians who have a biblical worldview, we do not live with that dissonance, with that frustration. God not only knows the end from the beginning, He knows the end from before the beginning. 
Daniel's God is not in heaven, wringing his hands, looking at that beast, saying, oh no, I didn't see that coming. God is in control. And because of our view of reality, of our understanding of the truth of all that there is, we can relax. I also wanted to mention our view of sin. There's an important lesson here about evil. I think often people assume that we do evil against our better judgment. That may be true as believers, but Scripture makes it quite clear that sin is sinful, and the reason why we sin is because we want to. All have sinned. We all need redemption. This beast finds stimulation and pleasure in evil. And, and Daniel 8 is a reminder of the truth that I hold biblically, theologically, logically, but I have a hard time embracing emotionally. And it's this, the unreasonableness, the irrationality of sin. I, because I have this default secret notion that if, you know, if we can just sit down together and talk, we'll talk things out, we'll come to a kind of understanding that will diminish all hostilities. Maybe that's rooted in the fact that we're in the image of God. But Scripture takes a different view of the heart of fallen man. So don't be surprised when hearts are hard and sin is sinful. My very first mission trip to Romania proved this to me. If some petty official could exert control over you and make it harder for you, he will just because he can. We found the same to be true of our missionary trading, for our missionary trading partners in India. Most recently, we found it to be true of trying to get a heart valve to save a little girl's life in Bolivia. For some bureaucrat, saying no to you and your deep desire to help was his exercise of power over you. And he enjoyed it. Sin is irrational. But by contrast, God is the God of reason and transformed minds. Come, let us reason together. Uh, Paul was always reasoning with people in the marketplaces. Scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Take every thought captive. Think on these things. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ken Boa, a friend of our church, has written, I've always regretted every act of disobedience to God and have never regretted any act of obedience to God. Redeemed obedience is the only path in the universe that makes logical sense. And finally, our hope is in Jesus. Daniel was told to seal up the vision, not hide it, but preserve it for the future, which is what he did, and that's what we have just now looked at. Until he comes, until Jesus comes, we've been called to be faithful. Why should we be faithful? Because God is on his throne. He's in control. Because Antiochus, Epiphanes, and Antichrist are not the only players in this drama. There's, one, there's a very strange, out-of-place being in this chapter, one who looked like a man, who spoke like a man, but commands Gabriel. I think, I think we've got some cameo appearances 
in the book of Daniel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace and said, Look, I see four men loosed, and the fourth one is like a son of the gods. And it's never explained. In chapter 7, with, uh, one like a son of man was coming up to the Ancient of Days, and to him was g- given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that, is, and that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. And then Gabriel interprets these things to uh, uh, Daniel and to us. And then 500 years later, 500 years after this, Gabriel's given another job. He's told to make another visit. And he does. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from the city of God in Galilee called Nazareth to a city of, uh, in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, prior to this, six months before, he had been sent, Gabriel had been sent to a man named Zechariah, a priest, and announced the birth of the forerunner, John. He is sent to a virgin engaged to a man whose name is Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at his statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this would be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Yahweh saves. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Lord, I thank you.